The Ringer's Dave Hill takes you on a journey into the underground lives and careers of six professional gamblers. This eight-part podcast is a unique look into the gambling world that you don't want to miss. Check out Gamblers on Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. This episode is brought to you by UGG. Y'all know UGG is a brand that athletes wear all the time in the tunnel and on travel days. Well, I bet you think UGG season is only during the colder months of the year. Au contraire, you're wrong. You need to check out the latest spring drop from UGG. They have everything from sandals to clogs. I like the sandals. UGG has you covered for your next spring adventure. Shop the golden collection at UGG.com. This episode is brought to you by Lincoln and the all-new 2024 Nautilus Hybrid featuring a customizable 48-inch panoramic display, available Revel audio system, and available perfect position front seats with active motion massage. Oh my God. The world isn't wide enough. Visit Lincoln.com to learn more. Some models, trims, and features may not be available or may be subject to change. Check with your local retailer for current information. Lincoln and Nautilus are trademarks of Ford or its affiliates. David, what's on your mind this week? Uh, this is a, a very, very recent one. Do you, does the name Lee Sanderlin mean anything to you? Mm, go on. Okay, well, I'll just read the, 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 the Twitter moments description. You'd stop me when you know the story. <laughs> Journalist Lee Sanderlin invites us along for his 15-hour waffle binge. Punishment for a fantasy football season gone awry. He lost his fantasy football league. I'm describing this, and his punishment was 24 hours in a waffle house. But going back to the Twitter recounting, for every waffle Sanderlin ate, one hour of punishment was removed from the 24-hour sentence. Um, this oh my was God. this was a, a, a Twitter thread about uh, recounting one man's time at 15 plus hour hours spent in a Waffle House trying to eat enough waffles to run out the clock. Um, first question for you: Does the fact that he's a journalist <laughs> <laughs> matter for the retelling of the story? Listen, it's funny because if you go to Lisa, Lee Sanderlin is an investigations reporter for the Clarion Ledger down in Mississippi. Yeah. Um, Part of the USA Today network, uh, but a paper with a lot of history. His pinned <laughs> tweet is about uh, an investigation into um, mem- uh, Mississippi nursing homes and their failures during the pandemic, which is, you know, a much different tone than how he is now probably more widely known. Um and he's a very good writer, but I'm wondering if the journalist, if the if, if it if it affects your reading of this Twitter thread that he that you know this is a journalist being subjected to this uh, this Waffle House punishment, like in the sense that I trust the fact that he is eating as many waffles as he purports to eat. <laughs> yeah, is there a level of integrity here? Do you feel like this is more than just a Twitter stunt? Yeah, uh, I mean, it's it feels yes, it feels like there's a different level of believability versus your usual influencer at. At a random place stunt. I just thought it was funny. First of all, I read the whole story before I realized that he was a journalist. And I read, I clicked on this, you know, the the trending topics thing. And the fact that it, he's being labeled, journalist is in the headline and the first word in the description. And I was like, does that matter at all? I don't care that he's a journalist. A guy. And then I thought, you know, it's kind of cool. Now I feel like I know him, you know? Mm-hmm. <laughs> I feel yeah. like he's part of the family. Also, secondarily, you can tell he was there for over 15 hours. So you can do the math. That means he ate what uh eight five six nine waffles eight waffles probably over the span of time but but, i feel like i would probably i mean listen listen i'm sure he's a guy with a big appetite i would probably if he ate eight i would probably the odds are i'd probably eat eight too i feel like i would go into this thinking i would eat 24 waffles and eat them fairly quickly and get out of yes i would i would have i would have a lot of courage about how many waffles i could eat I, I feel, would have ira- the, I would be the irrational confidence guy at Waffle House to quote this, our boss. This all st- there was a New York Times story about it um, that that broke down the number of calories in each waffle and and uh, you know and and what the butter and the syrup which which they said he appeared to be in by eating a which lot you of absolutely to it. need. I'm not eating a plain waffle. No, but exactly. But I feel like with butter and syrup, I feel like I could just. You just douse them and you slurp them down. I feel like I could eat. I feel like no doubt I could eat twelve. Like I could eat, I could eat twelve waffles before I thought about it. Is this like the hot dog guy dipping the hot dogs in water so they can <laughs> exactly. eat them faster? 
Exactly. Oh, yeah. What would you do if you were in this situation and you knew for a fact that using the dipping it in waffle in water technique would allow you to eat more and more quickly? Oh, God. Would you would you, tr- would you try to enjoy a single waffle? Um, I think I would enjoy the first one. Because yeah. you would at that point, you'd still feel like, you know, you're you'd have a rosy glow about you by like waffle number eight. I would not be enjoying it. I would just be trying to get through it. I will say the greatest thing. We could talk about fantasy football forever, but I think the greatest thing about we the world that we, I mean, about this this coronavirus vaccine that I have, that you have, you know, a, a lot of people around us have, <laughs> is that places like the Waffle House have now re-entered the conversation, right? The, yes. I, we talked about this on the show, that like the things, like I miss going to restaurants, I miss eating appetizers, I miss being out in public with my family, you know, just being able to go do a thing and sit inside in the heat or in the cold or whatever else. But it ended up the things that I was missing the most, like I was yearning for, were the things that just seemed like particularly wrong and like like bowling alleys and waffle houses and just, you know, things like that. And now, you know, now we can have this conversation and I can I can go see how many waffles I can eat. The one caveat I'd put in there is that I don't feel and you and I are from waffle house parts of the country. I don't feel the waffle house was really the totem of my youth that. I hop and like Denny's were like, I no, feel like be- I ate a lot more moons over my hammy and Rudy Tooty fresh and fruity than I ate waffles at the waffle house. Well, you're talking about, I agree, but you're talking, I mean, our experience with these is let's be, let's be clear about it. It's high school and college. And Denny's has a very particular gimmick that appeals to, you know, an 18 year old with a limited budget at one in the morning. You know, I mean, that's that that's the that's the Denny's thing. I hop. <laughs> that's, that's in the corporate prospectus. Yes. I hop limited has a, budget teenager at one in the morning. I think the difference between I hop and Waffle House, frankly, I don't know why I hop was running, but I hop was running contemporary marketing like commercial campaigns when we were of that age. Right. You would see I hop commercials. It seemed like a more yes. vibrant sort of like acceptable place. Like a nice now, place. Yeah. now, if I saw three of them side to side by side in the highway, I would go at the Waffle House largely because of the signage. Like, I'm just like, oh, this seems like a good old timey situation. I'm going to go there. I completely agree. Completely agree. So anyway, Waffle House, invite us. Did Come advertise mind- the show. We'll go. <laughs> we'll go eat your waffles and tell everybody how great they are. Is your did your addled mind go where my addled mind went when we started talking about this was to the classic old gawker piece by Katie Weaver where she was in a TGI Fridays for 14 yes. hours eating eating all you can eat cheese uh uh what was it cheese sticks fried cheese yeah. or something like it that was all or you appetizer can, and, all you can eat appetizers yes and and I read that piece and my and everybody else is talking about it and I could not the static in my brain would not clear away from I could I would be eating so much more than that <laughs> the, to actually like digest, no pun intended, the piece. So like how uh, how is it not an abject joy to go to? I mean, just it you seems go- like that, dude. But then after a while, it becomes super, super gross. You and I did this all the time when we lived together. Yeah, we would come out and be like, "We're gonna eat eight pizzas," and then after one pizza, we'd be like, oh, "I feel like shit right now. I feel terrible." Yeah, but I guess there's feeling like shit is such a huge part of this. And I know Waffle House is not, I don't believe, has a bar. But like if you're at the Chili's, I would just be drinking those like 32 ounce (laughs) mixed drinks. And I would not be, there'd be a lot of things going wrong, but like my stomach hurting would not be one of them for the the time that I was there. I I love how your your brain and my, like on another media podcast, people would be citing, you know, Frank Sinatra has a cold and. Tom Wolf on Junior Johnson. We remember my 14 hours search for the end of TGI Friday's Endless Appetizers. Oh, man. That's me and David. Coming up on today's show, we answer listener mail about Janet Malcolm, who passed away, the Dallas Mavericks piece in The Athletic that everybody is talking about, and Joe Biden versus the reporters. All that and more on the press box, a part of the Ringer Podcast Network. Hello, media consumers. Brian Curtis and David Shoemaker here, along with our producer, Erica Cervantes. It's Friday, David, and that means it's time to answer a little bit of listener mail. And we should probably start out with the death of Janet Malcolm. Esteemed New Yorker writer has died at age 86 of lung cancer. What do we make of the legacy of Janet Malcolm? Um... I'm sure there's a lot of people who you would call literary giants that are 
kind of still out there chucking along, but it's hard to imagine. It's hard to imagine us coming across many people that are in Janet Malcolm's sort of category, just in terms of like the name. I mean, the 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 weight that her name carried, in at least in, you know, the writing world that we inhabited in New York for so long, right? That she was obviously by the time that we were there, not like the flavor of the month by any sort of uh, <laughs> definition. But, you know, one of the few sort of old guard writers who were still contributing on a regular basis and who would sort of, and for whom the literary world would sort of grind to a halt when she published something new, right? I mean, there wasn't, I can't, I think we are part of many different sorts of literary circles, all of which, um, but no, and but no matter what party, no matter what, club no matter what group you were going to if janet malcolm had published an essay that week you would arrive prepared to discuss it yes i i saw somebody tweet r.i.p to a legend yesterday (laughs) and i wanted to get mad because i'm like oh my god can we just spare the language of celebrity death for janet malcolm Mm -hmm. but it's kind of true yeah it kind of is the right word i mean think back to those paris review parties you and i used to spend way too much time at was there a single person there that didn't have the journalist and the murderer on their bookshelf? Certainly not. I'd guess zero. Yeah. I mean, I think if we picked like, you know, we can talk about influence and how good they were and all that stuff. But like, just in terms of, do you have a book that's on everybody's bookshelf mm-hmm. at this, at this party of this generation of journalists of which you are not a member of this generation? I would guess like Joan Didion, Mm-hmm. And her, and maybe we could pick one or two more. How far? How far down the list is sex, drugs, and cocoa puffs? Because I think top ten. <laughs> yeah, I was gonna say, <laughs> I, 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 maybe top five. Yeah, that's uh, our that's our particular generation. But yes, of, of that mo- in that moment in time. Yeah, um, we need to make this list. By the way, the Brooklyn, we should make this list. The yeah. Brooklyn Literary Bookshelf. 2004 nonfiction. Through, the nonfiction through, bookshelf. Right through 2004 through 2010. Yeah. Okay, this is going to be a good exercise. Because <laughs> I, I feel Tom Wolfe was there, but he had kind of phased out just a little bit by that yeah, point. Yeah, I don't think t- Tom Wolfe was, I think people would, would put his name on a list, but I don't feel like he was, he felt as, as central, as necessary to the like modern conversation at that point. And real hardcore reporter types like your David Remnicks, though on a lot of those bookshelves, were not a universal bookshelf book. It needed to be somebody a little more in the kind of generalized nonfiction space, which Janet Malcolm was like the perfect, yeah, perfect person. And it was always yeah funny. before before the before I mean before the kind of resurgence of the essay collection of which that we're still in the midst of right, but before like John Jeremiah Sullivan and you know before all the you know the, the those books were were bought far and wide by everybody who wanted to you know discuss things that were had, had been previously published um as a new body of work um yeah she was very much she was she had such a, a footprint already established yes so to talk about the journalist and the murder for just a second everybody will quote today the first sentence of that book which is so famous every journalist who is not too stupid or too full of himself to notice what is going on knows that what he does is morally indefensible. And from there, she proceeds to this cutting critique of journalism, which is based on the relationship between Joe McGinnis and Jeffrey McDonald, Jeffrey McDonald, who murdered his family, and Joe McGinnis, who wrote a book about him and pulled all this information out Mm -hmm. of Jeffrey McDonald and delivered a book that was perhaps way different than the one McDonald envisioned. It's funny because, uh, you know, when she wrote that, book she became i mean she was kind of pilloried for it right in the in the journalist journalism world one because of her own previous transgressions in which we we can discuss that in a second but two just because i think you know just calling the form morally indefensible got a lot of people's hackles up as one would expect and i'm sure as was the the intention of that line and people were very people were very very defensive about it now it's kind of interesting because every journalist you know today and even then um, at some point has had to say they, you know, has had to contend with um with, you know, some sort of 
someone misreading their work, right? Someone criticizes your work and you say, well, you didn't read past the first sentence. What's funny is the second sentence of that Malcolm, famous, famous Malcolm book or slash essay uh, from the New Yorker, um, it doesn't change, it, it doesn't It doesn't water down the first sentence, but it does, it does focus it a little bit. It says, as you read, every journalist who is not too stupid or too full of himself to notice what is going on knows that what he does is morally indefensible. He is a kind of confidence man preying on people's vanity, ignorance, or loneliness, gaming their trust and betraying them without remorse. That's harsh, but that second sentence is a lot harder to deny, right? Mm -hmm. That's a lot. It's that that is a very pointed way of uh, of of defining what I think. Even the people who are most offended by it would admit that they do for a living, right? It's not. I think that the I think that the tough part is is not actually how she not really what she's accusing people of but but her defining it as morally indefensible but when it's laid out like this it's hard to say any, it's hard to call it anything else right absolutely and as uh, kit seeley noted in the uh new york times obituary it is one of those things that seemed so seem like a shot across the bow at the time and later became sort of almost uncontroversial yeah by the time he got later, uh, Malcolm told Katie Royfe uh, for the Paris Review, today my critique seems obvious, even banal. It does, you know. And I always find it was funny. One of our mutual friends and I used to joke because journalists would kind of discover the journalist and the murderer every few years online. <laughs> There'd be this mm -hmm. big discussion about it. I remember like the gang gray comments section, like that was like 10 years ago, 15 years ago. It was like, hey, what do we think about this? It's one of those books slash pieces that just, you know, every generation will get roiled up about it or have a, you know, hand wringing discussion about it. And, and it never stops. It stands directly, diametrically opposed to the sort of journalist as white knight mythology that we've talked about on this show, right? I mean, this, the, the, the journal, journalist is, is kind of moral paradigm and of, <laughs> of of social savior uh concept of course neither of those things are entirely true i saw a tweet from i mean you see this around a lot but peter manso is a great writer tweeted about it and said that he taught that he taught the the journalist and the murderer in an undergrad media writing class and that everybody was horrified i think that what's important about it is is that it's not shocking that that undergrads would be horrified by it, right? Because whatever you're pursuing in college, you, there's probably a lot of idealism attached to it, and a lot of people go on in their careers to to maintain that sort of idealism. But at some point, you have to confront reality, you know. And this is and and I think that's what Janet Malcolm was was able to do in the piece is just sort of force everyone, including the journalists themselves, to confront the reality of what they're doing a lot of the time. Uh, Jack Schaefer, my old boss and Politico media writer, did a funny thing on Twitter where he just substituted something else for journalist. Now watch mm -hmm. how the sentence still works. Every car mechanic who is not too stupid or too full of himself to notice what is going on <laughs> knows that what he does is morally indefensible. He is a kind of confidence man, preying on people's vanity, et cetera, et cetera. There is a sense that the critique, that critique, while so hyper-focused on journalists and so true at its essence is also true of a lot of people <laughs> in this world, right? Like that, that when Jack writes it that way, you're like, oh, right. Uh, auto mechanic does fit just, mm -hmm. just fine mm -hmm. in that sentence, which is pretty funny. The other thing about Malcolm that complicates that book, or at least the way we think about that book, and Celie mentioned this in the New York Times obituary, was that Janet Malcolm was also herself if I may use an only in journalism word here, embroiled in a lawsuit <laughs> about her own journalism. I'm going to quote Celia here. It says a 1983 profile of the flamboyant psychoanalyst. By the way, does anything say New Yorker article more than profile of a flamboyant psychoanalyst? <laughs> Jeffrey Mason led to a libel suit against Ms. Malcolm that hung over her during a decade of litigation and clouded her reputation even longer. Dot, dot, dot. The journalistic community generally judged Ms. Malcolm harshly, mostly for the finding in the Mason case that she cobbled together 50 or 60 separate conversations with the loquacious Mr. Mason and made them appear as if he had spoken them in a single lunchtime monologue. Mm -hmm. Now, this is an old, old practice of magazine writing. The mm -hmm. subject told me X. Uh, I mixed X with hamburger helper and I printed Y. Mm -hmm. And the quotations may be 
true in spirit, as certain magazine writers used to say, but they were not delivered to me in the neat and tidy order that you read them in the New Yorker magazine. Mm -hmm. Malcolm said this in 1993 uh, during the jury trial, this thing called speech is sloppy, redundant, repetitious, full of uhs and ahs. I needed to present it in logical, rational order so he, meaning her subject, would sound like a logical, rational person. So here's the person who has the sweeping critique of journalists that, as you say, hits you right in the heart, who is herself taking these amazing liberties with what people say. Yeah. And doing this very old New Yorkery thing of, I'm going to create this perfect paragraph by paragraph, you know, monologue that was not delivered that way at all in real time. Yeah. I mean, listen, a lot of people will and, and did at the time of when she published her essays uh, call that stand sort of hypocritical based on her own history. I don't think that there's hypocrisy in there at all. I mean, I think even under the harshest reading, it is a very uh, normal human thing to reflect on things that have, um, you know, affected you in life in, in various ways and, and to have that sort of reflect in both ways. I mean, to reflect on it personally, but also have those things from your past reflect out into your your area of interest going forward. I mean, Janet Malcolm, if nothing else, was sort of a, how to just, how to say it, like a multifaceted specialist, right? I mean, she returned again and again to certain areas of interest that were a little bit unusual, but there were many different areas of interest, right? Um, I mean, even if you look at her like history of design writing or whatever, I mean, it's, it's a, it, it is, deeply informed by her own taste and her own lived experience, right? So it's not weird that she would, if even if you want to draw a straight line from A to B, it's not, it's not strange and it's certainly not hypocritical that she would have a more deeply thought out opinion on a subject after, she, you know, years after it had affected her directly in life, right? And I believe, yeah, I believe, and I believe the journalist and the murder, the edition I have anyway, the later edition, she does talk about that. Mm -hmm. in an afterward well, and, she, and she and she denies it if i remember correctly i don't even remember the, how she wrote it but i remember her being more and slightly in more denial of it than i would have than i would have said in her position but the thing i believe that that one of the issues at the time was and again according to the times obit was that that was not disclosed at the time yeah yeah so you know when you're talking about and again i don't think janet malcolm is necessarily sparing herself from the uber critique of journalists but it does seem fairly germane to this issue if we're talking about confidence yeah. man, et cetera, that that a different form of that is what this person is accusing you of mm -hmm. and that you are saying, look, I did this. I just I did this because I believe this is the way to make this a single, you know, a, a more readable substance than actual human speech. That does seem like it <laughs> does seem relevant to the larger it's, case. It is. It is certainly relevant. I don't know what the formality of her. I mean, it, it does seem by her kind of afterward in that edition that she wasn't inclined to include that sort of disclosure in her piece. I don't know what the her editor at The New Yorker would have said if she had attempted to disclose it mid piece. It does seem like it does seem slightly unlikely based on the time. But maybe I'm wrong. Also talking about the, the, the time period. I mean, listen, I don't even I don't I, I, I insist that you don't respond to this <laughs> just for whatever reason. But like, I think I think that the that what she was accused of doing and in, in cobbling all those quotes together and, and, and again, even under its worst reading, I think that most journalists out there uh, can see a little bit of themselves in what she was accused of doing, whether or not they've done it to that degree, to that extent, to a problematic place. Whatever. I think everybody's done some stuff that and when they were doing it, they were they they wondered to themselves silently if they were doing if, if what they were doing, you know, passed a certain threshold. Um it's funny though when I think think about it, because I do think that there's that she was, you know, she's writing in this sort of new journalism, post-new journalism world, and she's not really a part of the style and well, I mean, she she's she's certainly expand a more expansive writer than she could have been in an earlier generation, but she's not like a, a, a new journalist by any kind of cliched definition. All that's to say it was an evolving form, but she would have been a lot, I think freer in 2021 or even in 2000 to, to, you know, footnote, which <laughs> literally, literally footnote, which quotes came from which interviews, you know, to they're, they're Wait, like, you they're, think she could have put a link? 
That's that's well, what yeah. The, I think yeah. that I think that there I think that there are formal ways that you can sort of play around with this, you know, with with the problem of combining multiple interviews that, that you wouldn't have ever considered doing then. Well, and the subject would have a lot more recourse now because they yeah. would say, "Hey, all that stuff I didn't say that." Yeah, it was hard to do that in the old days, short of you know going to another publication, which may or may not care, or just filing a lawsuit. Yeah, it was hard. And by the way, the New Yorker was not big on disclosures back in the eighties. Right. And before that, there's this whole history of, you know, articles that, shall we say, you know, fell short of the bar that were kind of buried in, you know, this this mountain of words and, and New Yorker style. Mm-hmm. It's very interesting. Shall we switch gears abruptly from Janet Malcolm to the Dallas Mavericks? <laughs> sure, yes, absolutely. <laughs> A subject absolutely. as far as I know that Janet Malcolm never covered during her esteemed journalistic career. Yes. I, thought about you the other day as soon as i saw this piece come out because the other day on the podcast you had talked about this particular tradition of nba writing an nba team gets eliminated from the playoffs and then the (laughs) shot clock starts while their beat writers are trying to write the here's what went wrong behind the scenes story so Mm -hmm. we saw saw the team lost lose on the court and then the beat writers are going to tell us okay here was the you know, secret history behind the scenes uh, in the front office or with the two stars that hated each other or the trade that didn't get made or went wrong. And they deliver this very, usually very satisfying journalistic product a few days after the season ends. We sort of got the mother of all what went wrong stories this week. Yeah, (laughs) we sure did. On Monday, Sam Amick and Tim Cato published a story in The Athletic about the Dallas Mavericks. Now, If you are not a sports fan, follow along here, and then David and I can, I think, make this interesting to you. Haralabas Vulgaris, known pretty universally as Haralabob, Mm -hmm. was hired by the Dallas Mavericks a couple of years ago. He is a gambler, and what would you call him? Sort of a quantitative research? Yeah, I mean, he was sort of a... a, a, Before basketball Twitter was was a... you know, term of art. He was a basketball Twitter personality. He was known around. He was on Bill Simmons, our boss's podcast, a bunch. And yep. Gambler, I feel like Gambler is, is, has been used pejoratively a lot in the past week in reference to him. <laughs> Don't we he all did, gamble now? <laughs> yeah, I mean, but he 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 was a he gambled legally on professional basketball based on incredibly in depth statistical models and analytical models that he built. And then he eventually, I think, had a giant staff of people contributing to these models. He was that successful. Um, and he was betting, he just figured out, you know, you know, inaccuracies or, or, you know, just kind of holes in the ways that the casinos were running the lines basically and, and ways to, you know, earn money time after time. He, he was, and he was incredibly successful doing it. And so he became this sort of basketball media personality. And then, um, just, you know, years after he kind of rose to fame, finally kind of parlayed that into this position with the Mavericks. Which, as you can see from Mark Cuban, would be really enticing. Hey, this sure. really interesting basketball mind. Oh, he'd been, I'm sure, I guarantee he had been offered jobs a billion times before and whatever convinced him, whether it was money or opportunity or just, the, you know, timing to, to accept this one, um, you know, is, is probably pretty incidental. The complication is the Dallas Mavericks, like every other team in the NBA, had a president of basketball operations, Donnie Nelson. They had a coach, Rick Carlisle, both of whom have won an NBA title. So then Haralabob comes in and his addition to the staff created what Cato and Amick called dysfunctional dynamics within the Mavericks front office. He was suggesting starting lineups to Carlisle, mm-hmm. which we would usually think of as something the coach sets, though less so here in the analytics era. He became a kind of shadow general manager of the Dallas Mavericks who is making draft choices. Anyway, all of these revelations were collected in this athletic article, which was quite good. It comes out, and on Wednesday, the Dallas Mavericks president of basketball operations, Donnie Nelson, a.k.a. the guy whose part of his job had been usurped by Vulgaris, left the team. Mm-hmm. The athletic wait, wait, later- wait, wait, wait. One quick, one quick thing to interject. Immediately after the piece was published, as the internet world was sort of, well, as the internet Twitter was a titter about, you know, this piece, Mark Cuban, owner of the Mavericks, replied to the, (laughs) to I think Cato, I don't remember whose tweet it was about the piece, but putting out, saying, this is bullshit. 
Uh, so anyway. total, total bullshit, oh, total, I believe, this is total was the bullshit. phrase. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. She said, total bullshit. And then in sequence, Donnie Nelson leaves the Mavericks. The Athletic would later report that he had been fired. Mm-hmm. And then on Thursday, yesterday, the head coach of the Mavericks, Rick Carlisle, whose job had also been, you know, sort of eaten at by Vulgaris, left the team. Mm-hmm. So... I do want to get to that Mark Cuban now because I want to talk about covering Mark Cuban, which is, I think, in the background of this story and a lot of stories. When I saw Mark Cuban say total bullshit, here's the first thing I remembered. Last year, Sports Illustrated had an article about a Mavericks executive, an investigative article. And if you followed what has happened in the Mavericks front office over the last couple of years, you remember the Mavericks had a strenuous objection. To that article, a very, you know, let us say sort of uh, aggressively worded response that got passed around on Twitter. Then this year, the Mavericks fired that executive. Whoops. <laughs> guess it guess guess it wasn't uh, total bullshit on that one, too. So when he said that, I immediately went like, there's no reason to believe this guy. There's absolutely no reason to believe this or aggregate it where somehow that gets to the top of the aggregation pile rather than these obviously researched revelations, I guess, for lack of a better word that Cato and Amick have come up with. Yeah. And I saw this on like, there was a Dallas morning news uh, story about this. And again, an aggregated story. And I don't think the morning news was trying to pour cold water on the athletic, which is their competitor in Dallas. I think it's more like, you know, how when you do aggregation, you're, you're looking for the uh, the best headline that will sell. And Mark Cuban does fill in the blank. Yeah. is a much more exciting headline than report outlines dysfunction in the Mavericks office. But there was a there was a news story that said Mark Cuban blasts athletic. And I'm like, mm-hmm. can we not do this? Yeah. Billionaire billionaire business owners blast every negative story about them. They're never going to be like, it's all, you're right. It's all true. <laughs> They're never going to say that. And yet within a day or two, it was like, oh, they were right. He was not right. Yeah. I mean, I suspect that there was probably enough, you know, enough sort of minor quibbles around the edges for Mark Cuban that he felt slightly justified in saying that it was total bullshit, that there were many tiny instances of, Total total is an interesting word if you're uh, picking at details. No, no, no. You're right. You're right. I think that the, the statement is it's calling it total bullshit is obviously wrong and, and 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 probably deliberately a lie. But I think that he probably saw. I mean, uh, Tim McMahon was on Zach Lowe's podcast today or yesterday talking about this, and and, and t- you know Tim's a, a, a Mavericks writer and, and and had a lot of insight to it. Uh, and I thought that they sort of they they broke it down in a pretty informative way. Um, and I and there's a lot of people that I saw kind of making kind of broader assumptions about the piece, even giving it the benefit of the doubt that that you know ways that you can look at things to to make it you know make a little bit more sense if you were disinclined to believe it all. But yeah, I mean, th- there's really no real way to read it than not only that the 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 athletic piece was right by and large, but that like it sent the Mavericks into a tailspin because I mean there's there's no <laughs> there's no re- there's no there's no way to read what the what has happened in the Mavericks organization since the publication of the piece, other than reacting to the fact that it is true, right? I mean, there's no, there like if it were in fact full of shit, if it were total bullshit, then the reaction to that piece would not have been to fire Donnie. Wal- I mean, Donnie Wahlberg. Sorry, Donnie Nelson and uh, and and Rick Carlisle, unless you had verifiable proof that they were the sources of the piece and. And by the way, Tim Cato has said that that Nelson was not a source for his piece. Mm-hmm. So it, it you know it sort of bore out to be true. I'm not exactly sure what the I'm, I'm not exactly sure what Mark Cuban thought he was calling bullshit at the time because it doesn't really make a lot of sense. No, and, and by the way, Cato has an a standing invitation to come on here and do one of those Please. press box post game interviews with us because I would love to hear about this piece as soon as he gets finished uh, breaking all the news about the Mavericks this week. But you do hit an interesting point, which is, and I want to ask him about this, is like when a piece like this comes out and then two people leave an organization immediately afterward, is was that going to happen anyway? Or was the fact that this was published, did that 
speed up a process that perhaps was going to happen anyway? Or would Rick Carlisle maybe have remained with the team under some scenario if the piece hadn't come out? I suspect almost all works of journalism like this are reflecting something that was about to happen, right? If it had gotten to this crisis point. Oh, man. But it is really there is an interesting relationship right between what's published and then what actually winds up happening. Well, if you want to look back at a discussion of Janet Malcolm, that question involves a a deeper moral question. Right. If you feel like the public, the pushing publish on this piece is going to affect somebody's job security, (laughs) then does that affect what you do? I mean, presumably no. But but if but if the question is, does it does it affect does it actually change the course of history? I mean, that's a that's a deeper that's a that's a deeper question. Right. I mean, listen, the the, it's a lot of times you said that, you know, we talk about how these pieces run every season. Right. About multiple teams. A lot of times when you read them, the most interesting sort of dance that's going on behind the scenes is how much to disclose from the information that you have from semi-verified sources. Right. Or semi like like you things that, you know, reliably to be true but you don't have exactly sourced out in terms of like, you don't have Mark Cuban on the record agreeing to this, right? Or you maybe only have it from one person on or off the record, but you know it to be true. And and then to how much, are, how many bridges are you going to burn in the process of publication, right? How what, what is it worth to give away in terms of what you're going to, in terms of the damage you're going to do to your own relationships going forward? All this is kind of happening at the same time. What was really revealing about this piece in The Athletic by Amic and Cato was that they kind of just, sprayed the lighter fluid and wrote as they wrote, you know, wrote the truth as no. they saw it to be, right? And that that's impressive. And it's also, frankly, slightly unusual. Normally, we don't see this sort of, this sort of, um, well, this sort of, these sorts of flames, unless it's like, you know, like Simmons will always joke about what the Boston media does to a coach or a GM after they get fired or a player after they get shipped out, right? That's, that, that's really, that's the now they tell us. Yeah, that's the now, but it's but that's when you really unload the like dump the notebook with no fear of repercussions. Usually, you you don't see that happen when the when the subjects are people who are continued who who continue to be on your beat, right? They continue to be sources that you're going to cover, and and this and that's what makes this one slightly interesting. Maybe that maybe that goes to reinforce your suggestion that all of this stuff was already in motion, right? When 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 the writing began to the point where there was a less trepidation on that front, but I don't think that makes it any less bold to do, I mean, to, to publish this piece. Yeah. When I say in motion, all I mean is dysfunction being in motion. I don't necessarily mean that Donnie Nelson was about to be fired or something. Mm-hmm. Who knows? You know, again, that's kind of part of the part of what I'm just interested in in the journalistic backstory yeah. here. I will complicate what you said just for a second, because there is a genre of this organization is dysfunctional pieces that we read fairly regularly. Mm-hmm. Kevin Arnovitz has written a ton of them for ESPN.com that are very good. I remember, I remember one about the Suns a few years ago, and there was oh, yeah. you know about the ownership and the the way players are chosen. Seth Wickersham has written a ton of the NFL versions. I remember a Cleveland Browns one pretty clearly a couple years ago. I think what's interesting about this one is that Mark Cuban himself is such an available and appealing media personality. And so when I Mm -hmm. heard the reaction to this story on Dallas sports radio yesterday and elsewhere, you know, journalists who have enjoyed Mark Cuban returning their emails and hopping on their podcasts and coming on their television shows are kind of like, because in a certain sense, Mark Cuban has been a very successful NBA owner. He admirably pushes against the status quo. He is admirably yeah. available to be interviewed. I support all those things. You and I are Dallas Mavericks fans, so we have we we support him being a good uh, winning a winning a title in Dallas. Mm-hmm. On the other hand, there had already been this accumulation of things that Mark Cuban had failed on. We talk about the culture within the Mavericks front office that led to all these oh, yeah. you know stories over the last year in Sports Illustrated. We talk. We can talk about the fact. If you just want to do pure basketball metrics, the Mavericks have not won a playoff series in 10 years. Then you get this, a dysfunctional front office setup that one, you know, winds up with two people leaving the franchise and two, and this was the big revelation, pissed off the Mavericks really big super duper star Luka Doncic, at least to some degree. So 
I just feel it's one of those things when you have somebody like Cuban who is so interviewable and so likable, then people go, it's easier to do with the guy who owns the Browns. Yeah. Or the guy who owns the Suns. But when I just feel the reaction to this is very, very interesting. Yeah, I I, com- I completely agree. It's a, I mean, the, and then the Mavericks are just a little bit off of, you know, the big media market NBA radar to the point where this is this drama is not playing out on a week in week out basis on first take or you know whatever. So it no. does. So so when you do kind of pull back the curtain, there's a lot of intrigue there. You know, a lot <laughs> there's a lot ready to be mined for this sort of storytelling. And I mean, listen, the piece got a lot of traction, produced a lot of interest. Certainly, it's got the fact that, you know, Carlisle and Nelson left the organization immediately immediately thereafter have amplified the story and the reporters. And I mean, to such a degree that it's kind of unfathomable. I mean, you you almost never see this sort of thing happen, especially if I mean, you, I mean, you listen, you, you do frequently see stories about dysfunction. You frequently see story reporters break stories about impending breakups in an organization, whatever. But this is just—I mean, this is a pretty significant cause and effect, or not cause and effect, but like a B sort of situation. I don't know. It's—it's it's, it's incredible. I mean, and listen, you can, as a Mavericks fan, I'm reading between the lines as as if it's my job, right? I mean, like I was trying to talk myself in and out of various parts of this even before Nelson and Carlisle left. You know, I think that there's a I think that there's a pretty, I think that there's, you know, a way to read this that, well, there's, there's a lot of ways to read this, right? I mean, my initial reaction when they, when, when the piece came out or when, when Nelson was removed of his job, everybody pointed to the story. My mind immediately went to his first, you know, where Nelson immediately after the Mavericks were eliminated from the playoffs, his first comment was that Luca needs to learn how to share the ball. And I was like, well, he's going to get fired for that because that's like the last time, the last thing you want to say about you're the only good player on your team. You know, after they get after he gets like drag kicking and screaming out of the playoffs. And, you know, the Carlisle thing is I'm sure the story had a direct relationship to Carl. I mean, a direct effect on Carlisle leaving. Right. I mean, there's no way that you can read that story and have. And if you're Carlisle and not feel like my job is insecure, even if they invite me back next year and I don't and I'm too. I'm too established to have to deal with that shit. You know, and so I'm sure, but I'm sure there was a cause and effect involved. And it's yeah. pretty, I don't know, it's pretty crazy. And a measure of pride, too. Yeah. Like it's one thing if, if this is happening and I'm kind of swallowing things I don't want to swallow behind the scenes. Mm-hmm. It's another thing if everybody knows this is happening. Yeah. I, I just think that's a, that's a normal human emotion. And I wouldn't be shocked if that's mixed up in some way. The one thing, the one caveat that I'll say to this whole <laughs> story about dysfunction, it is dysfunction by any definition. All the stuff that you mentioned, the front office just catastrophe that the Ma- that was that the Mavericks had been dealing with the past few years is probably chief among them. But um, I mentioned Tim McMahon's appearance on Zach Lowe's podcast, and McMahon makes a, the point, which they make, you know, Cato makes in the piece, and and I think that it's, but it it, it deserves to be repeated is that. Mark Cuban, who has way too much on his plate, is the general manager of the Dallas Mavericks, but not yes. by title, but by but practically. And so the whole the entire history of the Mavericks under his watch has been a question of who has his ear. And I think that the real narrative is that Donnie Nelson was had lost, you know, had lost Mark Cuban's ear, and Haralabob had sort of filled that vacuum, filled that void, and and so it's not necessarily like a Game of Thrones situation. So much it is just like. The person sitting on the throne has a wandering eye, you know, and 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 this is finally and, may, you know, maybe there's some good that'll come out of, you know, the inner some three, you know, two thirds of the inner circle, the two the, the two thirds that are being ignored actually being, you know, shown the door so that he could so that there's a, some sort of a functional power structure now. I will. I'll steal a point, too, from Bob Sturm on, on Dallas radio. He made uh, a couple of days ago, which is that. Jerry Jones, who owns the Dallas Cowboys, takes for himself the title of general manager, mm-hmm. which everybody in the NFL has spent the last 25 years making fun of. Like, oh, my gosh, you are really think you can be the general manager of this team. Mark Cuban, it appears, does exactly the same thing functionally, <laughs> but does not take the title. Donnie Nelson, yeah. a much loved executive in the NBA, has the title, has that title or president of basketball operations, whatever it is. Mm-hmm. So. 
Mark Cuban is almost distancing himself from the critique of this owner is meddling in everything, doing everything over his head because one, he has a fairly recent title, I guess it's a decade ago, but two, he just doesn't actually have the, 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 the job on the business card. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And it's interesting how much slack that has earned him. That's totally true. It's really, really fascinating. All right, David, let's do the overworked Twitter joke of the week where we celebrate a gag that was so obvious that all of media Twitter made it at exactly the same time. Send your nominees to at the press box pod where they are always gratefully received. David from the you'll never look at the 90s NBA the same way again department. Mm hmm. Ben Collins, you know, Ben Collins, a reporter on NBC. covers oh, yeah. QAnon, all those things. He found an anti-COVID vaccine video. (laughs) I know what this is. And it stars John Stockton. (laughs) John Stockton, the all-time NBA assist leader, says in the video that he has, quote, done a significant amount of research about COVID-19. It was an overworked (laughs) Twitter joke to write, even in retirement, John Stockton is still willing to pass up a shot. (laughs) That's great. Wait, can I can I do a brief aside here? Please. I would just like to I would like to first of all, Ben Collins, I saw, I saw him tweeting about the Mavericks front office dysfunction. Ben, if you're a Mavs fan or a Dallas guy and I don't know it, please come on the podcast. Let's talk about it. But second of all, I would like to uh acknowledge that he was formally he might already be there, but formally inducted into the club of journalists whose faces have appeared on Fox News with a damning Chiron <laughs> underneath them this week. It was there was a guy on a Fox News said NBC reporter claims angry parents fighting CRT in schools because critical race theory are being funded by dark money groups. And his face was like on the giant screen. He <laughs> replied to it politely, saying they basically got his story right. Thank you. But um, but yeah, that's a that's as as Fox moves fully into the media criticism uh, vertical. It's just that's got to be a badge of honor to be on there. It is truly a weird, a weird outcome when Ben Collins and Brandy Zadrozny are like the number one subject on Fox. <laughs> I know. What? It's so okay. funny. Elsewhere in Overworld Twitter jokes, David, we got a very weird quote from Russian President Vladimir Putin this week. Uh, here is the quote. In life, there is no happiness. There's only the specter of happiness. The quotable Putin. In life, there is no happiness. There's only the specter of happiness. Would you like to hear some of the funny responses uh, to that quote from the Russian president? Uh, Wait, does Putin write for nihilist Arby's? Uh, (laughs) This is like your college friend who got super into Russian lit after taking a long drag. Uh, Is there a 76ers game tonight? And my fave, uh, check on your dictators, guys. The pandemic was hard on everyone. (laughs) That's great. And finally, David, according to Deadline, Disney Plus is planning uh, a Beauty and the Beast prequel series. What? After okay. they already remade Beauty and the Beast as a live action movie. Mm-hmm. I don't know if this is like Cruella style where we find out that Gaston's family was actually <laughs> killed by beasts. Because I've always the wanted emo to know what, ta- the emo retelling of uh, of the Beast's backstory. Yeah, this could be really interesting. I've always wanted to know what uh, Gaston's motivations were for being so anti-Beast in the original <laughs> story. So I would love a a long multi-season series that explains What's it the, to what, me. what is the over under on Ron Perlman giving being given a token role as like one <laughs> one of the like the parents of one of Beauty or the Belle or or the Beast? Every young Ringer reader just just completely didn't get that. That but that is. <laughs> That is very funny. It was an overworked Twitter joke, David, to rework the lyrics of a beloved Beauty and the Beast song to reflect the Beauty and the Beast prequel series. Are you ready? Yes. It's a little early on the West Coast here for me to sing, but I'm going to do my best. Are you ready? Okay. Three, two, one. No one spins like Gaston, cashes in like Gaston, (laughs) fills out plots that are probably thin like Gaston. He's especially (laughs) suited to synergizing seven bucks for Gaston. (laughs) That was fantastic. Like I said, it's early on the West Coast. Call me Disney Plus. I'm available. If you made me sing a song I know by heart, congrats. You made the overworked Twitter joke of the week. 
Those lyrics are courtesy of CNN media critic Brian Lowry, by the way. Great stuff from Brian there. This episode is brought to you by Empower. You got money questions like, can I retire early? What are my best savings options? Can I afford to pay for my kid's education? Luckily, Empower has all the answers. With Empower's real-time dashboard and real live conversations, you get clarity on your real-life financial goals. So join 18 million Americans and Empower What's Next. Start today at Empower.com. Tap the banner or visit this episode's page to learn more. Sponsored by Empower, not an endorsement or a statement of satisfaction by a client. This episode is brought to you by Hotels.com. If you're busy like me and you're trying to catch your kids' games, it's important to have somewhere where you can go to find a good hotel. We're all over the place. Sometimes, you know, we're in Florida, we'll be in New York, we want to take the wife on a quick vacation and get away. Whether you're looking for a relaxing getaway or heading out of town to see the playoffs, Hotels.com app has a perfect hotel for every trip. Compare up to five hotels side by side so you can see prices, amenities, and star ratings without having to switch back and forth between options. So start planning your next getaway and find your perfect somewhere in the Hotels.com app today. This episode is brought to you by NetSuite by Oracle. As your business grows, you might start seeing some lag. There's too much work for your team, too many different processes, and it takes forever to close the books. If this sounds like you, you should know these three numbers, 37,000, 25, and 1. 37,000 is the number of businesses that have upgraded to NetSuite by Oracle. It's a cloud financial system that can help streamline accounting, financial management, inventory, HR, and more. 25, that's how many years NetSuite has been helping businesses do more with less. And one, because your one-of-a-kind business deserves a customized solution for your KPIs. It's like when you come here for this podcast or when you check out your favorite website to gather all the info you need to make better decisions for your fantasy leagues. Well, NetSuite does that for your business and then some. It's one efficient system, one source of truth with everything you need to grow. Right now, download NetSuite's popular KPI checklist designed to give you consistently excellent performance absolutely free at netsuite.com slash ringer. That is netsuite.com slash ringer. All right, let's do a little more before we get out of here for the weekend. Uh, this is from Not Chester Lemon, who writes to us, we spent four years railing on the orange one for his treatment of the press. How do we feel about Joe Cool, that is Joe Biden, getting snippy and then apologizing? He is referring to Joe Biden in Geneva, David, who had this yeah. back and forth with CNN's Caitlin Collins about the aforementioned Vladimir Putin. Listen to this. Why are you so confident he'll change his behavior, Mr. President? Yeah, I'm not confident he changed behavior. What the hell? What do you do all the time? So, when did I say I was confident? You I said, said in the next six months. I said, what I said was, let's get it straight. I said, what will change their behavior is that the rest of the world reacts to them and it diminishes their standing in the world. I'm not confident of anything. I'm just stating the fact. And then he storms away. If you don't understand that, you're in the wrong business. I think, well, listen, the, the, the combination of, of parts A and B add up to just a, <laughs> a situation that I'm glad the president apologized for. Um, I think that as many people pointed out in Biden's defense, it is it is significant that I, it, or it does seem that he was responding less to just a question and being asked a question on, you know, an impromptu question by a journalist and more to being misquoted by a journalist. Right. I mean, it seemed like he was more interested in the fact that she had her, she had presumed that to, to, to say that he had said that he thought Putin would change his ways. Um, but it did. But listen, he blew up. It was really it was it was maybe it was not a great look. It, I, I mean, it was certainly not a reaction he should have had by my est estimation, whether or not it was a good look in terms of the way he will be perceived as a fighter or something, I guess, is is, is, a, is a different question. I do think yeah, it was nobody probably a, no, no, nobody in the public cares at all. I do think it was a culmination of the the normal sort of minefield that you walk in whenever you were doing a sort of public readout of a of a of a conference such as this especially with a sort of in uneven adversary like like vladimir putin right like everything you say is fraught <laughs> there's right? an only so, in journalism word uneven yeah. adversary i love it well i mean it's just that, yes oh, thank you uh, he everything that joe biden said this was by far joe biden's most impressive public speech or pu you know public question and answer session that he's ever had to do because the implications of every answer that he gave were so significant, right? Everything, every word that he said was studied and deliberate to a point that his head was probably about to explode. And 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 besides that, there's probably this layer on top of it 
where he's being where everyone around him knows that whatever he says is being measured against his predecessor, right? That like what whatever response he gives is going to be weighed against the way Trump did it. And so you have this like you have this palpable anxiety. By the way, he was very cool in all the answers that he gave but when he was behind the microphone. But then the but but built into it is this really ridiculous level of anxiety and just like I said, it's a minefield and so when he walks away and the first response is someone like almost seeming to his mind willfully misreading what he said his response is basically i tried so hard to say that in such a deliberate way and you just asked me a question that seemed to not have heard anything that i said at all right he shouldn't have responded that way and it sort of would have been so much more effective even as like a deterrent from people doing that in the future if he had just been if he had been comical about it right but he re- but but I think that the the most significant part about it is that he apologized and that Caitlin Collins, who is incredibly good at her job, responded the way that she did by saying he doesn't have to apologize. He just responded to my question, you know, and 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 that's I think that's sort of the end of the story right there. Yeah, I mean, my 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 take was um, that if we do the proviso of yes, but yes, 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 Biden is not Trump. These people don't like us reporters. Yeah, they're not. You know, just be, just because you have replaced an you know abhorrently anti-media administration doesn't mean that the new administration likes the media. They don't. Yeah. Jen Saki, you know, maybe again, you know, you don't have to say like she equals every single other person who has stood behind that podium. But those people like the media when they are helpful to the Biden administration. Mm-hmm. I have never seen does does Joe Biden perhaps have a side of him where he's joking with reporters off camera and kind of doing all the thing. I'm sure he does like almost every other politician, but I have never gotten a whiff that Joe Biden likes the media. No, there was another quote, I think from the same day where he sort of like half seriously said, complained that the reporters never asked him a positive question, right? Which was yeah. sort of like the Trump critique in a, in microcosm. Um, but, but there's a huge difference between sort of making a crack about it. Like Biden seemed to be doing and like semi-seriously trying to rally mobs of people against, (laughs) against, you know, journalists that are, that are physically nearby, you know, it's a whole different thing. Absolutely. When what you saw there was like a fairly normal and normal, intense journalistic interaction. It's just that those now are on Twitter instantly. So it's aha, something's happening here. Something's happening here. Yeah. Happens all the time. By the way, before we go, speaking of famous reporters, you know, Shane Harris of the Washington Post mm-hmm. writes about national intelligence. He was on Twitter this week warning people away from making a particular joke, lest they wind up in the overworked Twitter joke of the week feature. <laughs> Don't do that. We're going to have to end the segment. If, 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 every, if everybody tweets originally, then what the hell are we going to do? I'm just I'm just I'm flattered that we're that, we're that feared. I really am. <laughs> The second worst thing as a journalist is for Ben Smith to email you. The first, the the absolute worst is to wind up on the overworked Twitter joke of the week. Uh, well, I'll take just want to just want to uh, avoid that at all costs. By the way, the only in journalism words of the week, fracas and beleaguered, fracas and beleaguered. Nobody says those words. They I thought just it was fracas. Well, see, that, I guess that just goes to the point. I, that, yeah, that, you never said it. <laughs> you never said it. It's time for David Shoemaker guesses a strained pun headline. Yeah. Monday's headline about a now scrutinized story of a whale swallowing and then spitting out a lobsterman was Moby Ick. We can maybe <laughs> talk about the, the doubts that have been raised about Moby Ick some other time. Today's headline, David, comes from Luke O'Connell. It's from the Hel- Herald Sun down there in the beautiful city of Melbourne, Australia. All right. Back to the land down under there. They oh, yeah, I'm all, I, so much material. I, I've been waiting. I've been waiting to go back to the land down under. Let <laughs> me tell you, when these COVID restrictions, I am, I'm going to be there as soon as possible. The Victoria State down there, David, like everywhere else, is figuring out how to reopen safely now that we're hopefully at the tail end of the virus. According to the Herald Sun, there's an especially onerous rule for ski resorts. Ski resorts. According to the ABC, travelers from Greater Melbourne will need to have a COVID test within 72 hours of departing the city and show the negative result on entry to the ski fields. So if you go skiing near Melbourne, you have to have a COVID test three days before, and then you got to show your negative COVID test before you get on the slopes. I'll also leave you with this. Boy, has this rule made these ski operators angry. What was the Melbourne Herald Sun's strain pun headline? Oh, my gosh. It's, it's like 
COVID, COVID test, skiing, downhill. Yeah, we're looking for ski words here. Slope, uh, uh, T-bar, uh, <laughs> lift. Um, David skis. and I are, you're not a skier and neither am I. No. Do you know an Hills, alternate word that's, diamond. Used, that's used for ski run? If you get off a ski run, you go off. I have no idea. Do you know the word pieced? P-I-S-T-E? No, no okay. never heard never heard that. And certainly would not have known it was pr- pronounced that way if I read it. David David is from the warmer climes, ladies and gentlemen. So pieced. That's your key Peace. word here. Pieced of burden? Pieced of... Uh, um, <laughs> Uh, Beauty and pe- the Beast, just Beauty. to tie it back to the Disney Plus series. Uh, Peace. Uh, oh, oh. Um, Remember, they're angry. Everybody. Yeah, they're peaced off. Or pe- peaced uh, off. Peaced off. Uh, yeah. Put us out of our misery. He is David Shoemaker. I'm Brian Curtis. Production Magic by Erica Cervantes. David, we're back Monday with a very special guest. Oh, yeah. Who's that? It's Chuck Todd. Oh, yes. I cannot wait moderator of meet the press here for a full 30 on monday have a fabulous weekend catch up on all your reading and join us for more lukewarm takes about the media see you then david see you later brian